The symptoms got worse and worse to the point where on Christmas Eve, I'm standing in front of the congregation, ready to give my Christmas Eve sermon, um, and realized I had become blind. I couldn't see anything. And so that was the beginning of the realization, I may not be able to continue on this path. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome everyone to the Holy Sparks podcast. Happy Cheshvan to all of you celebrating the new month, and I'm super excited to have an amazing guest with a fascinating story. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify the woman properly. Batya Yakova Dale is an active member of Congregation Beth Jacob in Redwood City, where she enjoys study, davening, singing, drashing, leading creative Torah study sessions, and preparing for her upcoming bat mitzvah, which happened professionally. However, she has been and is largely still known as Reverend Stephanie Etzbach Dale, the name under which she was ordained as a Unitarian Universalist minister in 2005. Shifting into semi-retirement, she currently serves a wide range of religious seekers through her spiritual direction practice, TendingSpirit.com. She is also enjoying the freedom she now feels to grow more fully and meaningfully into Jewish identity, service, and creative expression. And she's also a good friend of mine. Batia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation. Good to be with you. Absolutely. Well, for anyone that's not familiar with your origin story, and certainly I want to learn more about it, um, talk a little bit about your life growing up. Where did you grow up and in what faith? Talk about how that all interweaves. I grew up in Queens, New York. My parents were immigrants. They came over from Wartan, Germany in 1957, I believe. So I grew up in Queens and my parents, by virtue of what they had experienced of their surroundings in Germany during that time period, were both atheists, agnostics, very much um, against anybody telling you what to believe uh, because they had seen so much corruption. And so I did not have religion in the home, but my parents did want to sleep in on Sunday mornings. So they sent me to Lutheran Sunday school. And um, I really enjoyed that because it gave me a sense of community, a sense of people striving for something better until I reached the age of reason. And I started asking questions about the teachings. And at that point, I set off on this incredible 25, 30 year journey of studying lots of different religious traditions and philosophies and trying to find my way to what is most true about who we are and why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. I love it. Okay. Now the age of reason could vary depending on your level of maturity, but I'm guessing for you, we're talking around 12, 13, or we're talking 16, 21. What does that mean for you? You know, I was a really nerdy kid. So for me, it was a little bit more like 10 or 11. I actually found that there were different versions of the Bible. And I did my own comparative study. I started teaching myself Greek and in, in order to start making sense of these texts. 
So yeah, I was a nerdy kid. Absolutely. You started teaching yourself Greek at the age of 10 or 11. That is impressive. Amazing. Uh, reminds me of a friend of mine who is actually a pastor in uh, Verbena, Alabama, who taught himself Greek and Hebrew so he could fully more understand the Torah. So that's interesting. Okay. Now, it sounds like, um, you know, your parents were atheists. I get to sleeping in on Sunday. It makes sense to me. And it was a Unitarian. Was that the framework? Did I hear that correctly? Or was it something else that you were connected to? Well, they sent me to Lutheran Sunday school because that's kind of what was available there in the community where we lived. And after I left there and went on this tremendous search through all different religious traditions, trying to figure out what do they have in common? What's the same? What's different? Does it matter? I found my way to Unitarian Universalism because it had this freedom to, to really respect the different religious traditions. But the emphasis wasn't on what do you believe? The emphasis is on how you live in the world. Mm. So very, very justice oriented. As it turns out, very rooted in Judaism. I think Zedek Zedek Tirdof, acts of justice, acts of righteousness. And funny side note, I played music in a Unitarian Universalist church for a year. And I literally, you know, guarded spiritual seeker that I am. I was just waiting for the shoe to fall off the whole time. I was waiting for them to like have this big reveal of some dark way that they believed. And it never happened. They were lovely people. And it was so warm and so welcoming and the beautiful music. So it's a funny little side note of my story. So I can understand why you... Lucky them for having the benefit of your music. How sweet. It was a nice community up in Napa. So, and at what point did you decide to, I would say, take it to the next level of, you know, becoming ordained? And, and what was that process like in that tradition? I was originally ordained as an interfaith minister in 2000, and that kind of set me on the path. I, I loved those studies. I loved that focus, but I felt like I needed to be together with people who want to do more in the world, and that was the Unitarians. So I was uh, I ended up having to go back to seminary when I was 40 years old. I moved to Chicago and lived in student, see, I even say it, Chicago, lived in student housing. Fine. And it's an MDiv program. It's a four-year program. And you also have to do a full-year internship in a congregation. And you also have to work as a hospital chaplain. So there, there's a lot involved in that. I was ordained in 2005. And in the meantime, I had married my, my husband. And he's Jewish by birth, but never really felt all that connected to, to Jewish practice. So when people hear that I converted, they assume that I converted for him, but it actually had nothing to do with him. And in fact, my converting is bringing him back to his Judaism. Wow. Okay. So amazing that, that that's how it went for you. Because the last interview I did was with a good friend of mine who literally discovered his wife was Jewish like 10 years into their marriage. And it started this whole thing. So that is fascinating how it it lands in your relationship. There's so many more questions I have about this. Okay. So you, was your goal initially, you know, going to seminary to become, I guess, I don't know if this is the correct word in the universal Unitarian uh, lexicon, but to become a, essentially a pastor or a minister in that faith, like leading a congregation, was that part of it? Or was it more for you just learning and growing, which I would say in Hebrew, lishma, like learning for the sake of learning and personal growth. 
Um, learning for the sake of learning and personal growth, I think, was and still is my primary goal. Um, pr practically speaking, I wanted to be a chaplain, a hospital chaplain. I had done a lot of work with people at end of life and during times of crisis, and I felt called to that. I felt that, you know, that's something that I can bring. Mm -hmm. But I found out that you can't really do that unless you are fully affiliated and you have some sort of a clergy status. So I entered into seminary thinking I'm going to I'm going to do all of these things so I can get that certification so I can be a chaplain. In the process I discovered that congregational ministry is so much richer in terms of all the different ways it's going to challenge me to live out my faith, figure out what my faith is, articulate it and live it. And so I ended up going the path of congregational ministry for many years. Okay. And, and what was that like? Tell me a little bit about that experience. And then obviously there was a transition out of that, but let's talk about the, the good years of it. You know, the wonderful thing about congregational ministry is that you actually get to know people, right? You have this tremendous trust where you get to be part of their lives and you get to see the connections, the invisible threads between them. And for me, it felt like I get to see these invisible threads between them and between them and God, and I get to point them out and nourish them. What started becoming challenging for me was the realization that a lot of people who were drawn to Unitarian Universalism um, don't use that language. They may, they just may not use the God language. They may not believe in God. They may not even want to talk about those kinds of things. And so it became harder and harder for me to speak from a place of authenticity um, because I had to keep finding other ways to describe that which is most mysterious within and among us and, and what I feel we are called to bring to this world. And that hurt my soul, honestly. It was really, really hard to have to dampen what I see in the world because what I see inspires me to such awe and gratitude and motivates me uh, in really tough times. And it was hard to see other people not really able to or wanting to connect with that it's amazing and it's amazing how many communities i travel in and if i say god on the bema it's like i feel this ripple go through the the congregation it's not like necessarily a wave of love and acceptance it's like everyone's own stuff comes up around that so it's fascinating that you experienced that in the universal unitarian world as well Talk me through the transition out of that into this long path of conversion and discovery in Judaism. And maybe you can start the bridge and I have some questions as you go along your way. Okay. So um, for several years, I was working as a minister and again, having this internal experience of feeling like there's some incongruity here in terms of what I'm teaching and how I really feel. And I ended up getting a bit by a tick and got Lyme disease and tried to power through it. But the symptoms got worse and worse to the point where on Christmas Eve, I'm standing in front of the congregation ready to give my Christmas Eve sermon um, and realized I be had become blind. I couldn't see anything. And so that was the beginning of the realization. I may not be able to continue on this path. Again, tried to power through it to figure out how I can stay in my profession and ultimately realized I couldn't, but also quickly realized that that illness was an out for me. 
It gave me permission to step back and to tend myself, body and spirit. And as soon as I knew that I was going to be leaving my congregation, I contacted the rabbi over at CBJ and asked, would it be okay if I came to services and sat in the back pew and and maybe attended some classes? Because I just need to go someplace where I can bathe my soul and use some of these ancient stories and some of this ancient language because it speaks to me. And I have not been in a place where I could really do that. And of course he said yes. And that was that was the beginning of everything else. And what year was that to context? I would say that was 2017. 2017. Okay. Now, second of many questions. So was there a particular reason why it happens to be a conservative shul congregation, synagogue that she's mentioning? Was there a particular reason why? Was that your husband belonged there or how did that happen? Uh, again, my husband had really no affiliation whatsoever, but I had met the rabbi through some of the local interfaith work that I had been involved in. And so I had actually brought my uh, my religious school class to CBJ one day for Rabbi Ezra to show them around and to show them the Torah and explain a little bit about Judaism to them. So we had a little bit of that background. That's the practical reason. But the longer I stayed and realized there are other options, the more I started thinking about, well, why conservative? And I realized that for me, um, there really is a part of me that that likes the tradition, that likes the rules, that likes the the idea of a framework that asks something of me. Mm-hmm. That it's not just you can do whatever you want anytime you feel like it. <laughs> that there something is being asked of me. And that speaks to me greatly. Um, I, you know, in the meantime, I think I've explored a little bit uh, more of different parts of myself and different parts of who I might be as a Jew. And sometimes I wish we weren't sitting in our seats so much. I wish we were dancing. I wish we were up and about a little bit more. Um, but I have permission to do that. So I do that. Uh-huh. For sure. 2017. Here we are six years later. So talk a little bit about the process of conversion. And, you know, because I know that I have some people that watch this that aren't Jewish and not that the goal of this podcast is to convert people, but I know a lot of people are interested. What is that process? Um, because it is different for everyone. And and since my very last interview was someone that also went through the process, I'd be curious to hear some of the differences. I did not set out to convert. Again, I came because I needed a place where I could go to have my own relationship with God, to be able to listen deeply uh, and learn from others in the process. So I started taking classes, and the first class where it really started hitting me was the Pirkei Avot class, Mm. because we were going through the ethics of the fathers, and as we went down the list, I'm like, yep, 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 this is how I was raised, yep, this is how, you know, there's nothing foreign about this. Mm-hmm. This feels like how I, I was taught to live my life by, again, by parents who were not Jewish. Mm. And so that really intrigued me. And I started meeting with the rabbi regularly to have conversations about uh, the things I was reading and the things that were coming up. And I would say it was about a year and a half, if not close to two years, um, where I was just taking these classes and boy, isn't that interesting And then one day I heard myself taking, well, saying, well, we as Jews, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, and I realized I used the word we, 
Mm-hmm. And I stopped and thought, well, what's that about? Now it's not them, their history. Now it's we, this is me. Mm. And that was a returning point because I thought, well, yeah, absolutely. There is nothing about this that feels foreign to me. And it speaks to my soul in a way that nothing else ever has. And so then the question became, what does it mean to be Batsarava Avraham? What does it mean to take on this identity? Mm-hmm. The people who knew me well were not surprised, mm. but there were a number of people who actually said, uh, and these were Jewish people, who said, why on earth would you do this? I was going to ask about that. Yes. Okay. And why do you think they asked that question? I, to me, it seemed pretty painfully obvious. You know, it's a really, really difficult thing to move through the world as a persecuted people. Mm-hmm. to have that history and to continue to to feel that you know the world doesn't get it doesn't get who you are and who you're trying to be and has all these preconceived notions about what that means and periodically that will be a real problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, when those people said that to me i i think i understood where it was coming from and it made me incredibly incredibly sad mm-hmm. that those negative aspects that that history, that negative history, was overshadowing what I see as incredibly beautiful and potent in Judaism. Mm-hmm. That the folks who are born into it may not necessarily be paying attention to all the wonderful things about it because they're so focused on the things that make life really hard. Yeah, it can be hard to focus on the you know the beauty of Shabbat candles with a bomb siren going off. So I totally get both sides of it for sure. Uh, and so the question I also asked my last guest too is, you know, oftentimes rabbis will let people know about that. Hey, by the way, you should know coming into this tribe, as soon as you join, you know, there's like 100,000 people that want to kill you. Just in, in, they say it in a lot of different ways, but that's just the reality. It is what it is, no matter how I feel about it. So was that part of the conversation of conversion? And how did you process that? I don't know that that was part, I mean, I don't know that there was a curriculum. It really wasn't a curriculum. It was a matter of me bringing what I'm wrestling with and Drabi being very generous with his time and patience through all of that. Um, I did write essays, you know, about what all of this means to me. And for me, integrity has always been incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Why I'm here and, and that it matters what I do and how I show up in the world. So um, here I am. I love it. And it sounds like your past community or maybe the Unitarian community or family, it sounds like they were very happy for you, excited about the process. Was that, did you, did you have any kind of reaction from people that was uh, negative or was it all like, this is great. This feels resonant. Again, from, from some people who were Jewish, there was deep concern as to why I would put myself in, you know, choose a hard path. Mm. Um, for some people who have who did not know me that well and who had a Christian background, the question was, so does that mean you're going to shave off your hair? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. There was, you know, for some people who whose only exposure to Judaism is, you know, watching the Netflix movie Orthodox or something... They have this vision of what it means to be Jewish that um, they just couldn't put those pieces together. They thought I would become a completely different person. 
Right. And I had one family member uh, that I had I had it out with around that because she was absolutely horrified and literally thought that I was going to be completely different and unrelatable henceforth. No shaitels involved. That's the Yiddish word for a wig. It's funny when my my brother, our our whole family's baltashuva, which basically means kind of returning, which essentially everyone that's Jewish is is Balt Shuva, right? Not just the people that weren't as observant and become more observant. And as my brother became more observant, my mom's only concern was that she, he wouldn't be able to eat in her kitchen. Everything else was mm. great, but because it wasn't necessarily at the level of kashrut or whatever. So yeah, so it definitely is um, like anything great you do in life. It's a master exfoliant of other people's stuff, for sure. I want to ask also, in my previous guest, he talked about what's called a Beit Din, when you gather three rabbis together and they do that, and you usually have a mikvah. Was that part of your process, or was it different? Or I'm curious about that. It, it was. Um, again, I, I don't think there's a curricula for this. Every rabbi, every shul will do this a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, but the rabbi here had had suggested that I, I write my essay, that I write my life story, that I just write down all, some of the questions that you're asking me, right? How can I frame my Jewish identity? And there was no rule as to how that would happen. And so I thought, why don't I take the books of Torah, find the main theme for each one, and then write about that theme as it unfolded in my life? Starting with Bereshit, with the recognition that in the beginning, right, the beginning that is constantly being created, what are the things that needed to be separated? What are the things that, that I could call good? What did all of this ask of me? So every part of my life, I was able to put under one of those categories. And I wrote that essay, and I had a bait dean of three people who read that. And then we got together, and um, they asked questions. It was not a test because I don't know that everyone, can. Think, everyone thinks that it, it's a test. It's like a multiple choice test or something. But now that's why I want you to talk about it, just to sort of dispel notions of what people think it might be. And by the way, if you heard that word bait din and it doesn't sound familiar, um, it's essentially it sounds pretty harsh, but it means like house of judgment. How it plays out is usually there's three people that get together. Sometimes they're all rabbis, sometimes they're not. And they do what I would call more like an intake process. So it's like in, more like an interview conversation and they just want to make sure that you are sure about your decision. And then, they, and they, you know, this is since I haven't been through one myself. So this is my understanding of it. And, and I think it's good for people to understand well, what happens. Right. So that's why I wanted to explain it a little bit more. And, and it's great. So you, you read some of your answers to your essays. Anything else that you want to share about that process? After after we had that conversation together, we all drove over to Oakland and uh, we had the mikvah prepared. And so I had invited a few friends to accompany me through this process and to be present. Uh, of course, not in the mikvah room, in the ante room, but they were there drumming and singing and I could hear them through the walls just to know that that there were people there that were part of this. And for me, it, it, what was interesting was to discover that it was not so much that you're being dunked in these holy waters that are going to magically transform you, mm -hmm. that it's about all the intentionality and the preparation that you bring to that space mm -hmm. you know, to really take off everything that stands between you and God and to really be fully present in your full authenticity. That To me, that was incredibly powerful. You know, I was just thinking about something when you said the holy water analogy. 
which is, you know, I've seen people doing baptisms in the water and I wonder where they got that tradition from. I'm not saying they took it from the mikvah, but it certainly, it certainly rhymes, right? I don't know. Anything you want to say about that? Well, there are a lot of things that were borrowed, right? Every culture builds upon the next. There are a lot of things that are borrowed. And I think it's really important to pay attention to that, to, to, to notice where these things came from. You know, it's part of human nature to take what was and to put our own stamp on it, to transform it. Um, but I think it's also important to pay attention to where it comes from, really. What was the original meaning and why? What is the point of all of these things? I love it. I love it. Okay. Can I say one thing about it? Of course. Yeah. It continues. What do you so, mean? Well, one of, one of the laws is that when someone converts, henceforth, they are a Jew, and you're not supposed to ask them about that conversion because it singles them out, and it could potentially lead other people to not take them as seriously as Jews, right? Well, so there's a good reason for that uh-huh. recommendation. There's a very good reason. You want to protect the convert, right? But the fact is, again, you know, it's not as if you dunk into the waters and all of a sudden you come out and you're super Jew. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. You fly off. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a lifelong learning process yeah. for everyone, even those who are born into it. It's a lifelong learning process. And so there was that moment of the Beit Din, there was that day of the mikvah, but but then there was the first Shabbat after that, like how I approached that. And then there was the first holiday after that. And then there, the first conversation with someone who didn't know I had done this, and now I have to find a way to explain it. Um, so every step of the way has has been an affirmation of that process and has been part of that process. And I think that's really, I think that's really beautiful. I think it's amazing. And first of all, slicha, which means I'm sorry if I broke a, a law, which I didn't know, <laughs> you're not supposed to. But the reason why I'm doing this is because I think you're the third guest I've had that's in the status of what I call the righteous converts, right? Amazing people that have come in and are doing amazing things because I think it's incredible. I mean, that's really why I'm doing it. It's certainly not to make anyone feel bad, but you're, you know, I think everything that we do in life is an invitation to a conversation and hopefully it's a good one, right? And certainly your life and so many things that have happened are that. And certainly you're coming into Judaism and having to interact, interfaith, connect to all these people, explain like all of that builds amazing bridges, right? That's really the way that I look at it. So let me ask you a question. Totally side note, which I'm dying to ask you about. Can we talk about martial arts just a little bit? We're going to change the subject for a second. Now, I know that you have some tradition in a Japanese tradition, and I think you're a black belt or something. Don't approach her on the street. She's she's lethal. But no, seriously, I'm a, I love martial arts. In fact, I just found this certificate that I sweated for four years to get in, in a northern style of uh, praying mantis. But talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, Kyukushin Karate is what I was practicing in my 20s and 30s. And I was not a black belt. I was brown. I ended up getting really injured right before the black. So I didn't I didn't get that. But I loved, again, the discipline of it. I really loved the discipline of it. Um, I ended up having to let that go for a while because life got in the way. Um, but I have to tell you, when menopause hit, if I can be so bold as to say, I channeled all that extra energy by taking up boxing 
Yeah. It's, it's a very different kind of physical activity, but I tell you, it really worked. It was a wonderful thing. I love it. I think that's why we get along so well because I'm super into um, martial arts. And I, honestly, I, I, had I not been a professional musician at the time of going to martial arts, that would have been, that would have been my path because of, I like the the discipline. I like the art. I like the beauty of the forms. I like the physicality of it and the spiritual, you know, growth of, of pushing your body. And I just literally, but I started hurting my hands, which I need to play guitar. So I was like, ah, you know what? Let me, uh, let me peace out here, but that's great. Okay. A nice sidebar. Appreciate it. Let's get back to talking Jewish. Okay. Now, uh, since we booked this call, which was several weeks ago, I feel like the world has changed, right? I mean, the, I don't want to get into all of the atrocities, but it's just been in a horrible situation in Israel. And now we're at war and we're on day eight, nine or 10. So I guess I want to ask you, you know, what, what has been your experience of it and, and, and how are you processing? And then I have a couple follow-up questions to that. Well, I was afraid you were going to ask those questions. You know, it's such a difficult thing. It's so complicated I am not well versed enough in the politics of things to speak on that, but I can tell you that when I heard what had happened, the same I had the same feeling that I had in 9-11, which was, what are we doing? We human beings over and over again, resorting to such brutality. Are we not better than this? And this whole week I've been I've been thinking about, so in my B'nai Mitzvah class, which by the way, the, the event isn't until next year. Right now we're we're reading the Kings, we're reading David, and I'm going through this story of David, and I'm just like, this is horrible. There's terrible things, people being slaughtered left and right. Why are we reading this? Why is this part of our scripture, our sacred scripture? And I realize that it's because um, we need to know that that is still a part of who we are. That is still who we are. That's still what we have to grapple with. And it's always a matter of trying to, to get to the point where we can listen deeply for, for what it is that God is asking of us and what it is that we can actually bring to each other. I, I had a dream last night of... Um, that I was in the woods and, and it was beautiful. I heard birds singing. It was lovely. And then I heard chainsaws and I ran towards where that sound was coming from. And I saw all these trees for miles and miles had been knocked down. And in place of a forest was a cemetery, a huge cemetery. So I, I very often think in images and I have very powerful, vivid dreams. I try to channel that artistically what I was left with was this sense again of how each and every one of us, and, and this is part of the you know Kabbalistic teachings, each and every one of us, we contain multitudes, right? Each and every one of us is a tree and each tree contains a forest. And so there was something about the, the Jewish teachings of the value of life to mourn actually every life that is taken. Well, there, yes, there's all the complexities of social history and politics that we need to pay attention to, but at a very, very core level, life and love and this core human impulse to feel safe and to be loved, when that is challenged, as it will be, as it has been in the past, time and again, that's when it hits the road. 
who we are as a people of faith, that's when it hits the road. So I don't know what to do with all of this yet, but I'm trying to let myself feel it this week. You know, the impulse was to say all kinds of bold things or to just shut down with a pint of ice cream. I'm trying not to do either of those. I'm trying to really feel my way into what does it mean to be a human being, the good, bad, and the ugly. And a lot of the scripture basically affirms that this that this kind of ugliness is a part of who we are as human beings, and we have to reckon with it. We can't ignore it. We have to know that that lives within us, not just in the past, but also in the present. And so how can we live in such a way that we can become good ancestors. Mm. That's what I'm chewing on this week. And is that what you mean when you say we contain multitudes as in this idea, and it could mean a variety of things, but I just want to get clarity like that. We, we have a whole lineage that will come from us in that regard, or what do you mean when you say multitudes? In all directions, mm. our ancestors, and, and that can be a biological ancestors, but it can also be the, the ancestors of the spirit, right? So I chose Sarava Avraham, they are my ancestry now, mm -hmm. right? So that's part of who I am and what I carry into the world is the past, but also those who might yet come. And when someone is cut down, when babies are killed, that's not just one human being less in the world. It's a forest. It's a multitude. Mm. Yeah, I get it. So this week's Parsha is Noah. It's the first time the word Hamas is mentioned, ironically, which is, you know, one of the translations is violence, evil, derogatory acts. And so from your perspective, what's the purpose of evil in the world? Why, why is there still evil in the world? Mm. I had a hard time with Christian concepts of evil you know, that evil is out there somewhere, that you can battle it in, in very tangible ways. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really intrigued me about what I was learning about Judaism was the idea that God created evil as well. It's all of God. <laughs> and therefore, my task is to accept it, not run away from it, look it straight in the face and figure out how to deal with it and how to increase the light. <laughs> If the evil is going to be there, I have to trust that God wanted it there. Now I have to figure out how to deal with it. And how can I deal with it in such a way that it doesn't create in me the monster that I'm trying to destroy? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I heard a rabbi say just the other day that, you know, the reason why, in, from his perspective, and I think I agree with this at some level, God is revealing the greatest most heinous acts of, of evil visibly and in the world is so that our greatest light and good will come out as a response. And uh, I think there's some merit to that idea. Um, I had, and if I can just say, I had an image come to me the other day of a butterfly, a caterpillar chrysalis. Hmm. Between being a caterpillar and becoming a butterfly, they have to go into this shell and turn into complete goo, mm -hmm. completely deconstruct and deform. And that is a very dark and scary place. But out of that comes something beautiful. 
And so there is always, I mean, that's a great image, I think, mm -hmm. to keep us hopeful that out of all of this dark messiness, something beautiful will come. Yeah, God willing. Okay. Let's talk a little bit. We'll transition. I want you to talk about uh, tending spirit, your site, and, and the work that you're doing with that and anything you have going on that we can uh, learn from. So Tending Spirit is the name that I gave uh, this effort, this post-retirement uh, effort to still be in the world and to try to bring out into the world that which um, that motivates me to, to joy and to, to awe and to gratitude. And I gave it that name because it's about tending your own spirit, but it's about recognizing the spirit that tends us. And it, it sort of points out something about that relationship. Part of that work is being a, a spiritual director. So I have clients that I meet with, individuals, couples. I can also do group workshops and retreats. And the focus is meeting people where they are spiritually. So they don't, they don't have to be Jewish. They don't have to be this or that. They don't have to believe in God or use that kind of language. Our first conversations are about, tell me about your spirit. Tell me about the words that you use, the stories that are meaningful, the rituals and practices. Tell me where you're coming from. And my job is to meet them there and to ask a lot of questions. So it's not about being a guru and having the answers. It's about knowing what questions to ask and also to value the silence, the silent spaces. I'm developing a new program that has to do with um, what I call shamanic, uh, shamanic journeying. So not shamanic in the sense of let's bang some drums and call in the ancestors, but sh from shma, from listen. That's sweet. So, different ways of coming together and listening deeply through prayer, through meditation, through music, through sound, through movement, through art. So I bring together a lot of different modalities to help people listen deeply because there's so much sensory input. There's so much going on in the world, so many obligations, so much noise. And to get to the point where we can really listen and trust what it is that we're hearing. Um, that's what I'm really focusing on these days. So as part of that, I also continue to preach in Unitarian Universalist congregations when they invite me, usually about once a month. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, weddings, funerals, you know, lots of things like that. <laughs> when you're talking about tending spirit, you know, couples and, and singles and, and, and different people that are on a journey, what point in people's journey would be a good time to connect with you? And, and, you know, what's your, what do you like to focus on? A lot of people will think about doing this when what they've been doing previously isn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people come and say, you know, I've been meditating for years and, and it's just not doing it for me anymore. What's going on? Or people who are realizing that they have been running away from a particular religious background or identity and are recognizing that they want to reclaim it. They want to explore it. Let's go back to those roots and see what's powerful about that. How can I feel good about the fact that I still pray the rosary or that I, you know, people have a lot of different practices. Mm -hmm. I've discovered a lot of folks have shame about that. They don't necessarily want to talk about 
what really happens for them when they when they try to sit down to pray or to meditate or or what little rituals they do that someone else will think are are superstitious that other people will judge mm -hmm. so we have conversations about that what is it that prompted you to come seek my services what is it that your soul is yearning to give to expression how goes it with your soul what is it that you haven't told anyone yet? Those are amazing questions. Okay. Side question, which you just mentioned that once a month you do some ministering or, or preaching in universalist Unitarian communities. So are you, are you weaving in different themes of, of Torah or is it, you know, how does that, how has it changed now? with all your new knowledge and experience in life versus, you know, seven years ago. Absolutely. Um, more often than not, I'm allowing the Torah portion for that week to uh, inspire my imagination muscles, and that's what I will bring. Mm -hmm. um, there is one exception coming up in November. I'm going to be preaching for a congregation in Bakersfield, and that's right around Thanksgiving. And um, I felt really moved to talk about this whole issue of ancestry as it relates to America's history with indigenous, the treatment of indigenous people and the genocide and the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday and how all of that ties together. And what does it mean to inherit culpability? I recently read the, the book by uh, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, I think is her name on repent, repentance and repair, where she talks about how from a Jewish perspective, we do inherit culpability. And so we do need to learn about what our ancestors have done. If they have wronged others, we actually need to be working on making it right by their descendants. And so I'm looking at that from different angles, personally, in terms of being an American, in terms of being a global citizen, in terms of being a Jew, how does all of that work? So I'm chewing on that one. I love it. I love it. Well, it's amazing that you can float in between the, the worlds in this pluralistic universe that we live in. That really is the world that we're in. It's not just the Bay Area, it's the world, right? If you go to Israel, there's Christians, Jews, and Muslims, and, you know, and atheists. So there's there that the pluralism is really everywhere. Okay. Anything that you have coming up? I know I, I made an offer to to talk about any programs you have coming up. And I know you also produce amazing works of art, by the way. Check her out on Facebook. She has some really cool um, artistic renderings. But anything you have coming up that you'd like to, to promote? Thank you. Um, so my Facebook page is Tending Spirit. And I... I you know what? I told you I went blind when I got Lyme disease. When I recovered from Lyme disease, I started painting as a way to celebrate vision. And so the paintings for me are a spiritual practice, and I love sharing them with folks. Um, I am going to be preaching in December in Santa Cruz, and the topic they asked me to talk about is Hanukkah and hope. I have a feeling that the Hanukkah story and the that question about hope will very much tie in with what we're experiencing in the world today. How do we deal with uh, differences of opinion about how and when to act? What does that mean historic? What does that meant historically? What does it mean now? So I think all of that will be tied together in December. I also do once a month a um, a creative Torah study session at Congregation Beth Jacob. It's on the first Friday of the month. 
And we usually take the portion for that week and look at it uh, together in terms of, well, what does this say? And then we break it down into how can these things be conveyed visually? So what are the emotions that we recognize here? What are the physical objects? What are the actions? Uh, what are the, the dynamics? And how would you convey that artistically through color, through shape, through form? Um, and it's it's great fun. It's one of the highlights of the month whenever we do that. Sweet. I love it. Um, is there a painting element to that? Does it lead into that? Or is it just talking about the visual visualizations of it? No, the talking is the first part. And then, you I, you know, I bring art supplies with me and I encourage people to bring their own if they have any that they're favorite. Um, and then we spend the next hour making art with music. And, um, and then we get together and share what we've created. And the sharing part is really fun because a lot of times people will will create something and not really be thinking about what it means. But the act of sharing it with others and and articulating it creates deeper insights for them and for everyone else, because we notice things in each other's work that we may not have intentionally put there. And yet, how brilliant. I love it. Okay, I have two final questions for you. First question is, since you know, you've obviously done a lot of you know, pastoral work, and that was a big focus of, of your work. And from your perspective, and maybe with that in mind, what are a couple things people can do right now, given the state of kind of crisis the world is in, and people are in different levels of dealing with it? What are a couple tools that you could suggest for people right now? One thing is to um, be curious. When people's behavior is not what you expect or what you would want, to bring curiosity to that encounter. What is it about that person's background that makes them feel that way or, or act that way? And then to try to be in conversation with them in a way that's going to be accusatory, right? To truly be curious. I want to know you. I'd love to hear more about your background. Tell me more. Uh, that can be a really helpful thing. And the, the other thing is to, to not assume anything. People show up in all kinds of ways in the world. And we may think we can figure out we've got somebody pegged, you know, why that guy is talking that way or why they look like that. And human beings are so much more complex than that. So not not making assumptions. And then I could say also, you know, bringing a little bit of grace to our experiences where we're all just trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. We're all just trying to figure out how to be in this world, and we don't always get it right. And so one of the things that also really, really appeals to me in Judaism is this idea of covenant, right? A covenant between us and God, and I say, I think also a covenant between us human beings. Um, a covenant is, is, unlike a contract, a contract can be broken, but a covenant can't be broken. It can only be put back together again and strengthened. So there's this built-in idea that we're not always going to give it perfect. So don't be so hard on ourselves and on each other. Cut each other a little slack. Stay curious. Stay present. I find that to be uh, really useful. I love it. Beautiful. Okay. Final question. And I also want to thank you for your time. I know you're very busy and you have a lot going on. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon. And I know people are going to get a lot of value out of this. So my last question is... What do you think the Jewish world needs now most and why? Hmm. What does the Jewish world need most? You know, something very funny comes to mind, which is food. 
because there's always this tendency, you know, if you have an ouch, if you have an owie, here's, here's something to eat to make you feel better. That sounds funny, but what it actually represents is, is a core hospitality, feeding each other on a very, very core level. So again, people are having very different responses to what's going on in the world today. Emotions are high. We are not at our best. And so how can we feed ourselves and each other during this time? How can we bring that level of care and hospitality to each other? I'd like that to stay in the conversation. Part of that could be asking you, how are you feeding yourself? What, what morsel do you need from me that will help you get through this week? I love it. I love it. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And I always like to end with a blessing. Um, and I, I also want to share this. There's a, a midrash from Talmud that says that there are lights that have to come from outside of the Torah to shine through the letters to illuminate new understandings. And how I interpret that is people that come into the Jewish tradition are going to bring with them this amazing, A, sense of, wow, Shabbat, with this fresh eyes, like lighting Shabbos candles for the first time. I mean, Gavalt, that's incredible. I mean, experiencing all this stuff for the first time, it gives me goosebumps. Unbelievable level of um, wonder, right? And then you you know, Bacha translating your life experience and all your years of wisdom and preaching and study and personal development, bringing all of that into the community is incredible. And really, I know from my personal experience, you offer a lot of gifts and you're really able to shine new lights and really bring greater and what I would call a wider understanding. It like widens the lens, right? Because we're all looking through our sometimes narrow lenses and it sort of widens the aperture. Uh, so I want to bless you that you will continue doing your holy work and that you will be uh, a bridge builder and continue to offer new light and new understanding and new curiosity and teach us what we need so desperately, which is deep listening and to be heard and to create more what we're going to call shamanics, people that are on the journey of listening and hearing because that really is what so many people are desperately needing. They just want to be heard. They just want to be heard. They just want you to hear what they really feel and that that will create a great tikkun alam in the world. And I appreciate what you do in the world. So thank you so much for being on the Holy Sparks podcast. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family whom you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.